you can't have hope until you've recounted, remembered, rehearsed what God has already done. Because I mean, what hope is there if you don't know that God is powerful and faithful and that he will keep his promises? You know that through the scriptures, but you also know that through your own life. You know, I mean, that's that's what the whole story of Israel is like. You, you were supposed to keep looking back, Israel. You were supposed to remember. to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. Last time that we were together, we started a conversation with Jen Pollock michelle about her book, In Good Time. Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. It was a wonderful conversation. It's a convicting conversation. And it's about this very insightful and beautiful book. It's far more than a time management book. I know you hear about time management other places. And frankly, you can go almost anywhere else and get conversations about time management. In fact, it's a conversation that I don't like having because I hate having conversations about time management. However, as we're talking about the mission of God, as we're talking about trying to water the world in which we find ourselves, we have to be able to manage ourselves and manage our time. And this is a book that helps you to take stock of your world and the way that you live in it. Now, it's not about cramming everything in so you can get everything done. No, this is not a book about that. And I wouldn't want to even have a conversation about that. We're already so busy as it is. Part of the reason that we exist as an organization is to help people see that there is a better humanity. There's a better way to live. That's partly what it means to live as a follower of Christ, is not only to get your sins forgiven, which is huge, but to show that you are a part of God's kingdom and that you are living a life that others desire. And I like to push back against why we're doing what we're doing. Why are we so busy? Why are we doing so many of these other things? What have we believed that has led us to live in such stress all the time? And this is where Jen comes in. And this is the second part of our conversation. We circle around several of the ideas that really hit me as I read, especially the concept of waiting, which I know that no one likes to talk about, hope, which everyone likes to talk about, and the sin of acedia. Now, you may not remember what that is, but you will soon find out. It's a sin that I find that gets really overlooked. However, it is extremely prevalent today. And we are going to be talking about redwood trees. So without further ado, let's dive into my deep conversation with Jen Pollock-Michel. Happy listening. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine the other day. I was at his home and we got into a discussion about outreach. And Mm. he had done a project at his church where he was really excited about it. Something to reach out to the community. They passed out cards to get volunteers. And he got one response, one card. And of course that sent him into like any pastor. It's depressing. Like I'm failing. I'm not, it's not working. And his wife said to him, I don't know why you're shocked. 
you're asking them to do another thing. Yeah. It's, it's another thing that's added yes. on. And he, then he looked at me and he said, how do you get people's times when they're so busy? I said, that's the wrong question. Mm. The question is, is why are so, they so busy to begin with? Right. And what yes. are they busy in? And why yes. do we feel the necessity to pursue all of these different things? As if we are the, you've already adapted YOLO, FOMO, you know, the, the whole fear of missing out. Why do we feel like our kids need this experience? Why do we need them to be successful in this vein when we already feel ourselves so stressed that our kids yes. were basically resigning them to the same position? Yes. And sometimes I wonder if the Amish or the Luddites got it right yeah. to some ex extent. And you alluded to that in your work with the Luddites. Yes. This is the question that I think so many people have uncritically assumed it. And they want to compete in the same vein with it. And it's yes. not going to work. It, we have yeah. to offer a counter cultural life. Yes. And this is what Nubian, one of our lenses, as we call yeah. our, our lenses in the missionary encounter, is what does it mean to live as a countercultural community now? Yes. What does that look like? And we mentioned, we've we've talked on the show about being weird. We're already weird. What we, we say is the <laughs> Western, and I think it was um, mm. Andrew Wilson in his book, yes. How mm -hmm. the 1776, Andrew was just on not too long ago. Oh, good, good. And we talk about how we're weirder, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian and romantic. <laughs> that's that's the weirder. But what I mean is not employing it in that sense. We're already weirder when we look at the comparison to the rest of the world. Right. But what does it mean to be a Christian in the midst of the society? As you said, what? how do we have a communal way of life? Is there almost like a new monastic practice that the church needs to imbibe or perform yeah. that differs than the quote-unquote megachurch Christianity of performance and show that is so it's catering to that world and, and I would mm. even say as some have called it the two-chapter gospel versus the four-chapter gospel are you familiar with that no. mm -mm. the, the four-chapter gospel I heard this from uh, I was at the symposium with uh, James Davison Hunter and it was Ray Pennings who founded Cardis um, the, the Canadian think tank. And he mentioned the four chapter and he was referring to John seal, but I've seen other people write on this since then. He says the four chapter is basically a four movement gospel. There's creation, there is fall, there is redemption, and then there's the restoration or the consummation of all things. Okay. Which these are theological concepts we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. He said a two chapter is exclusively focused on fall and redemption. And what they miss are these other aspects. And part oh, of that. Interesting. Well, part of that is in Genesis where work is created, our vocation, which you refer to in the book. And I just had Jeff Hannon on who founded the Denver Faith and Work Institute mm. um, talking about that. He's got a new book coming out called Working from the Inside Out, which is fantastic. Mm. Uh, comes out in December. But in it, he mentions that when you have just the two chapter gospel exclusively, you lose vocation. You lose because the idea is we have to get them saved. Time is running out. It becomes much more imperative, but that's not historically how it was understood. Mm. Historically, it was much more holistic. We've become much more rushed. And especially with the advent of premillennial dispensationalism, where you even see the shift of entrepreneurs who had been giving to the relief of the poor, had been giving to helping provide systemic solutions, suddenly said, We're, we, we've got to evangelize in that exclusively. Mm. So they wouldn't even build buildings because Jesus was coming back. Mm. There wasn't this idea of, 
of how we live and how we are to permeate and go about interacting with the world, with creation, mm-hmm. it became this two chapter focus. And I, mm-hmm. and I, that helped clarify it for me, mm-hmm. but your work is in some respect described it without even knowing you were describing it. Mm, on, I didn't on, know I was describing that. <laughs> but even, even, even this aspect of belonging of, of thriving, because some would say again, in that two chapter sphere, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to thrive. We just need right. to get people saved. Right. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's part of the issue is that we have been running so hard that we haven't taken time to really be with God. It's not just doing, it's being. Right. It's a both and, not an either or, mm-hmm. which is where your book has has alluded mm-hmm. to it. And I, I thought your description of Amazon was mm-hmm. was so appropriate. And and you mentioned the waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the part that I I was like, <laughs> Don't want to think about this. Well, you mentioned waiting is a function of hope. Mm. Just one little line right in the middle of page 149. Mm. Waiting is a function of hope. You also take some time to describe hope. Can you illuminate and help us to see what it means to hope? Mm. The way you've described it. If you can remember off the top of your head, I know when you write a lot, sometimes you forget. I know. I was like, what did I say there? But I do remember saying that, you know, hope has a past orientation and a future orientation. So, you know, hope is built on what you've seen God do, the ways that you've seen him be faithful. Um, You know, I think about a psalm that I read this week, like just, I mean, just, I can't remember the specific words, but the idea of just, you know, how miraculous are your works? Like, could I even tell the measure of them? Um, You know, you can't have hope until you've recounted, remembered, rehearsed what God has already done. Because I mean, what hope is there if you don't know that God is powerful and faithful and that he will keep his promises? And you can, you know that through the scriptures, but you also know that through your own life. You know, I mean, that's, that's what there's a whole story of Israel is like you, you were supposed to keep looking back Israel, you were supposed to remember, um, but hope has a future orientation too. you know, just this whole idea of, we know the story's not ended. Um, we know that there's a reason why Jesus, like he is coming back, the world will be put to rights. And that is what you need when you are waiting. I mean, I talk about hope in the context of injustice. Um, When you have to endure injustice, what do you do? Like, well, you remember, you look forward to, you remember what God's done in the past, but you anticipate what he will do. And one of the things that God will do, because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, he is going to put things to rights. And that is the only thing you can hope for when you go through a season where you're just like injustice, like the evil are prospering, right? You know, this is the psalmist. Like I looked everywhere and the evil were doing great. Um, and it's even just hope for when you don't, you don't even, you can't even actually identify who's the evil person and who's the good person. You know, I think about the conflict right now in, in Israel, um, the war, and you're just like, this is just, this is just an impossible situation um, where I just people, innocent people are, are suffering. Um, I, the only hope that I have is that God sees and that God is going to put the world to rights. Like, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he will do it, um, but I hope in that. Um, 
I also remember quoting from N.T. Wright, where he said, hope is a virtue you have to practice. It is this, it's just like anything else. You just have to keep practicing hope, almost like you practice your scales on the piano and you practice your golf swing. And, you know, you, you practice all kinds of things. You have to practice hope. And I think that is to speak to, we've already talked about church, you know, it's just one of those practices that engage us in the practice of hope because you go to church and you live you know you're you're assaulted the entire week with other stories of of time and the world and then you get yourself back to church and you're like that's right that's right christ has died christ is risen christ will come again you know like you're called to the table and this is my body broken for you this is my blood you know of the new covenant you know take these elements as you do this you know remember until i come so you're telling a whole new story every time you go to church and and you so you're practicing hope when you go to church i don't think we think about I think we think sometimes of hope as an emotion, like you have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you, you get to practice it. It's just like anything else in life. What I find fascinating about the conversation about, we had Scott Sunquist, who's the president of Gordon-Conwell on the mm -hmm. show, and he wrote a book called The Shape of History. Mm -hmm. And in it, 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 the whole book is really about hope. And it's actually this fascinating look at hope. And he mentions hope is really a distinctive Judeo-Christian concept. You have to mm -hmm. understand that suddenly time became linear rather than cyclical. Yes. The Christian story takes it in this trajectory where the world will be righted, where mm. there will be a change. He said, even in the Tama language, and there wasn't a word for hope. Oh, interesting. I found that very wow. fascinating. Yeah, it had it had no concept wow. of it. So this idea of, of that different story, as you even alluded to, and that's one of the things that Mike Goheen talks about in one of our lenses is the biblical story must be the one that shapes us rather than the competing other stories mm. that seek to direct us. As you said, you're assaulted. I love that picture and imagery. We're assaulted with so many other stories that we can lean into, whether it's a movie, whether it's a book, whether mm -hmm. it's a politician or political movement, a vision of the good life on what it should be. We are assaulted everywhere we turn yeah. of these different ideas on how we are to live, but it's the scripture, which also involves awaiting and a suffering and a sacrifice and a belonging in the middle of that. And, and one of the things that you said, I want to quote, you said, you talked about misfortune. You said, let me be clear that misfortune is not the conflict. No conflict is a risk of belonging. And it, this isn't in the belonging chapter. This is in the waiting chapter. Mm. And inevitability, I even say, with all the admonitions in the Bible to get along, to forgive, to make peace, conflict is assumed. The greater misfortune becomes the impatience. People yeah. forget love is a project of forbearance, mm. a waiting with and waiting out. If transformation is slow in us, why can't it be so? Why can't it also be so slow in others? Mm. Oh, I thought that was so good. Just as we're looking at the world in which mm. we are involved in, especially within the church today, the church is then the necessary ingredient for us to to see and work out this waiting and patience to have refugees move down, but also in the world as we recognize and we wait, though we work to alleviate suffering in the different spheres as yes. we can and we try right. and we pray for, but we also realize that conflict is inevitable. God is, is doing something and we need to be able to submit to the master's hand in this that. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was inspired by mm. that quote. I hope I got it right. Cause there's so many different people that you quoted and, and referred to. Um, mm. 
when you're talking about waiting and you said the opposite of that really is hurry. And you said hurry corrupts the means to ends we can't stand to postpone. Mm. What does that mean? I mean, I, I think I know what it means, but I want you to explain it because mm. I there's something that is you got gold there. Yeah, you know, I actually started to get really interested in this. Um, I think even after writing the book, I started to get really interested in the seven deadly sins. No, actually, I was writing about it in the book as well. Um, but just this whole I, I I got interested in how a lot all of the deadly sins represented like an impatience for a good. Mm -hmm. That was a good, you know, like you think about lust, for example, like lust is an impatience for satisfying like erotic sexual desire. Like that's a good thing. But when you become impatient about it, you, you give yourself over to lust. You don't wait for, you know, sexual love in the covenant of marriage, for example, or, you know, you just, you satisfy your, your desires whenever they come along. Um, yeah greed you know as an example too you know that you could you could think about so often greed might not look like the person who never gives you know what i mean or like never um or doesn't or just doesn't care about anybody you know it could be the person who who does care they think you know i do care for the poor or i would give to the church but what i really need to do right now is sort of shore up my retirement account um you know like for me right now like so that idea of like i'm just postponing some of these some of these things i'm really kind of hurried in other vainglory is a is a deadly sin that people don't talk about enough i want people to like come back to thinking about vainglory um well probably i know that we need to talk about it because i know it's a sin of my own heart but vainglory and I, a lot of this is taken from rebecca de young's book glittering vices but she talks about how vainglory is so much about the shortcut because what you want in vainglory is you don't want to do good work necessarily. That's, or maybe you do, but your primary goal is to just make yourself known, you know, to get a little bit of fame, to get a little bit of applause. And so you could see how that could corrupt work. Like instead of having the patience mm -hmm. to do good work, you want to hurry to the finish line so that everybody can celebrate you. Um, so I, that's what I mean by that is just that there's, there's an impatience in the human soul where, and it could be impatience for a good thing. I think we forget, we forget that so often sin is not about the bad thing we want, but about the maybe very good thing we want, but that we have to have it in our way, you know? So the fruit, I mean, we could just look back into the garden the fruit was forbidden. I mean, it's probably a bad example because I mean, there was just like the fruit was forbidden, but it was beautiful. You know, in fruit, there were other fruit trees that were producing fruit in the garden that were given for the good of Adam and Eve, you know, so we're seduced by the enemy to think that, oh, well, sin will always be those like very obvious things that like, well, of course <laughs> you shouldn't want that. Well, no, I mean, I, I take a much more Augustinian view that sin is about misdirected, um, disordered loves. Um, and sometimes that disorder is you love the thing, but you, you're you not going to wait for God to give it in his way. And so you're just going to take it for yourself. 
which we see Saul. I mean, there's so many examples in scripture, but I think of Saul. So many. Yes. I mean, yes. when he, one of the examples with Saul and, and his was a little different because even as you're talking about it, there are some things that we don't want to wait on, but there's other times we feel the pressure of those around us. Sure. And then we Absolutely. make those decisions like Saul does. If Samuel says, wait to offer the sacrifice till I get there and the men start pressing him and he goes ahead and offers it. Yes. And Saul's like, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Samuel's like, um, what, what did you do? You know, Saul, that was his continued sin, continued sin. He kept doing that same thing over and over again. Yes. He thought he played fast and loose with God's word. Yeah. And that's where, even when he says, I want you to mm-hmm. sacrifice everything, including the, you know, the, the sheep and the goats and people kill everything. And, right. and he doesn't, of course. And he says, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Cause he's like, I've done what the Lord committed. No, you didn't. Mm-hmm. You did it in your way not in the way that God intended. And there is this waiting on God that we don't like. I mean, the whole waiting on Godot, right? And he never shows up. And we think, where is God in the middle of all this? That's where I think waiting is so hard, especially as you said, in an Amazon delivery world, where you said, if Uber Eats can show up in 30 minutes, God can can surely do this for me. But when you mentioned that, that, that sin aspect, you brought the two sins. You've already you've already talked about one, vainglory, where I went, oh, I I was struck. That one hurt. It hurt me. It just it did. Does, it does because hurt. it made me stop and go, what am I really doing? And it, is it me that I'm trying to promote or is it God mm. in his kingdom? And I, I put myself on the altar to let God do some spiritual surgery with his holy scalpel mm. um, to remove that sin of unbelief or that pride or whatever it is. But the sin that you really slap me in the face with like with a dead chicken was acedia acedia yeah i didn't acedia. even that's the that's the main sin in the book for sure well it's also the sin of today one that i mm-hmm. i preached on i actually did a series on the seven deadly sins years ago and acedia was the one that i thought i understood and then i got into it and i went oh no we might as well just call this the netflix sin yeah uh, something along that or the scrolling sin I I was thinking through that for those that don't know, and this is a new word for them. Can you help us to understand what acedia is and the different sides of the acedia coin Mm -hmm. that we need to understand? I feel so bad, by the way, you keep moving the light. I know. I'm so sorry. It's like, it's funny. I'm just going to (laughs) keep scooching over here, guys. As the the clock keeps moving. (laughs) You're it's like, like okay. a sundial. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I'm, I was trying to be so uh, discreet. Subtle? Um, no, it's all right. Don't worry. <laughs> this show is not about the discreet. You're all good. Okay, good. Oh, gosh. Acedia was the key learning, I would say, for me in this book. I actually have only even understood that more, more recently, just the more work that I do as I talk to different people. I'm like, you got to understand acedia and acedia was really key to me. So acedia is the sin of sloth, but what the monks understood that it wasn't just a, you know, lie on your couch and, um, you know, watch Netflix, that could be a manifestation of it, but it could also be you're super duper busy. And, you know, the example, I don't, I think it's John Cassian in his Institute. So this is like fifth century, I think. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, but it's the monk who in his cell is like, it's time to pray. And instead, he's like, surely there's a widow that I have to visit. Can I, you know, he's inventing excuses to leave off prayer, which is the which is the work. 
that he's called to. And acedia is the thing that wants that prompts him to want to escape it. So it's this, it's a sloth of the soul. And I think the person who describes it best for me in language that helps me recognize it is Rebecca DeYoung, who says it's resistance to love's demands. Mm. This idea that love and love is 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 how the fulfilling of the law. Um we love God, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You know, this is the whole of the law. So if we're resistance, resistant to love, we're resistant to God. And love does have demands. You know, love, God is love. God has called us to himself. But in calling us to himself, like we respond and participate and consent to the holiness he's already worked in us. Um, you know, that's all of that, all of the commands in the new Testament are about that, you know, walking in this newness of life that we've been called to, but Acedia would say, Oh, that just feels really hard. You know, that feels really like a lot of work or maybe just maybe we can do something else that feels more interesting. <laughs> um, and I think the reason Acedia was such a key learning for me was because all we had, especially in those early months of the pandemic, were the tedious demands of love. I mean, you know, it was like the dishwasher twice a day and all of these meals and all of these people who were right in our very midst that, you know, we had to love and get along with. And then we had our own selves, you know, that we had to I don't know, you know, deal with our own kinds of issues that came up as time was disrupted for us. And so it's this idea of like, I, apathy is the way that Uche, um, I'm reading his book right now. Uh, I can't remember his last name. He is at Viola, I think, and you should definitely have him on the podcast because it, this book, Overcoming Apathy, Gospel Hope for Those mm. Who Face Indifference, I think it's something like that. Um, the book is incredible. So he uses the word apathy, but he knows that really apathy is kind of not the thing exactly that the monks were talking about. Um, or, you know, if you trace the kind of lineage, um, etymological history or whatever, etymology of apathy, you don't get to acedia, you know, you get to like the, um, the Greek philosophers who were like refusing the passions, you know, who felt like, oh, it was better to be apathetic. Like it actually is a virtue in Greek philosophy, apatheia. It mm. means that you're not guided by your emotions. He's like, well, actually, no, what I'm really talking about is acedia. I am talking about indifference and um, this lack of care, this idea of like, oh, you know, loving God, that feels like a lot of work. I don't really want to do that. You know, showing up to church, reading my Bible, loving the poor. Oh, gosh, I'm exhausted to even think about it. Loving my neighbor, you know, um, loving myself even, you know, loving, keeping care of the, my, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, really? Do I have to think about like what food I'm going to buy this week and how what the patterns of my eating and exercise like it's this it's this. And that's the, that is the cultural zeitgeist, you know, it's just this like, meh, mm -hmm. like I cannot be bothered. <laughs> people cannot be bothered. This is, it is a stadia that is keeping people from returning to church. Like mm -hmm. people can't be bothered now to like get dressed and get up and go to church because they got used to, well, I could stay home and I could 
I could tune in um, from my computer. I mean, there's a lot of things that keep people oh, yeah. from church, but certainly yeah. Acedia could be one thing. Um, we could talk about Acedia all day because it is just, it, and I, I'll just say one more thing, that this was something that I think Uche in his book was very, I mean, this was just, we'll talk about cultural diagnosis. He said Seinfeld was a show about nothing. Like it was promoting kind of an ascetic stance in the world. And he, I didn't watch Seinfeld actually. I'm probably like the only person who didn't watch Seinfeld. Cause in, you know, cause I was right. That was right in the time when I was in my college. Um, you're in college. Exactly. Like, time I mean, I was, when you're in college to watch TV. I well, didn't. People managed it. And I, I did not watch Seinfeld. I never did, but so I'm going to just take him, his word, but he said um, the final episode of Seinfeld was that they get arrested for criminal indifference. They are basically bystanders. They witness a crime and they do nothing. They're like, instead of like helping this person, they're like commenting, I don't know, on what he was wearing or something. And so they get thrown into jail and then in, they're in jail for a year and like, you know, they arrive in jail and they're like, just so like, indifferent to the state of things. And he said that the director of the show said, what people don't understand about Seinfeld, it's actually really dark because it's a complete indifference to the meaningful and just an elevation of the trivial. And I mean, that mm. is, that's Acedia is essentially what Uche says, you know, it's indifference to the meaningful and um, an elevation of the trivial. Um, and one of I thought this was a really good way that Uche put it too. He said, um, taking from Isaiah chapter six and sort of like tweaking it a little bit to think about Asidia, I am a I am a person of indifference and I dwell among a people of indifference. And that's Asidia, you know, is that we can't be roused to care for the things that are really worth caring about. I I just that sword fell on my heart in the pandemic um, when I really started to think about what did I care about? Who did I care about? And did I just say I cared about them? Or was I actively giving my life for others um, and ultimately to Christ? That I think is one of the most difficult things because as you've mentioned, who am I serving? Who do I care about? It's one thing to care about those who are local and, again, the front row of our lives. It's harder at times with the mass news that we have of yeah. people around the world and their suffering. How can I care about everything and anything? I can't. Yes. There's too much that's that's going on. I, I think of the going to the grocery store and picking up you know, pasta for my wife. She goes, I need a box of pasta. Well, which one and what brand? And is it gluten-free? And there's so many different choices yeah. that are there. And and it's overwhelming. And I can't, even as I as I read through the news, and we see this this war going on right now between the Palestinians and Israel, but yet there was another war which we're not getting as much topic yes. now right. with Ukraine That's and Russia. Yeah. Because Israel is taken center stage. And then you see, you hear of other conflicts, what's going on in Yemen. And it's like, well, how can I care about all of these? Not that any of them are less important, but I only have so much emotional bandwidth and mental yes. bandwidth that I feel this this so not an I mean it is an apathy. And you just want to escape from the problems and scroll. 
and yes. and not think and not process and not go deep on these things. But we do have to find some places and spaces yeah. to be able to do that, which is where we we don't want to. I mean, we don't want to privatize our faith, but we are in control of the disciplines, as you mentioned, not all of them. We're in control of some aspects of it, some choices we don't have. And I think about it with my kids and you talked about this with the pandemic. When the pandemic happened, everything went online and there were so many people that didn't have that access to the internet or the devices that were there. And suddenly you find everyone forced to get into something that they didn't really have the choice of doing. I mean, yes, you could homeschool, pull your kids out, but you still need to have a way of connecting. And if you didn't have the internet, you weren't doing it. Right. And so I find that instead of becoming less connected, I was more connected in ways that I didn't want to be and I didn't want my kids to be. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly that's a choice that I didn't have per se. Now, some might fight back and say you do. But it's again, like what you said is how do I learn to live within the constraints that I find? What do I need to care about? And what do I not need to care about? And that's, again, unfortunately, in our media world, those loud voices have a tendency to clarify those things for us in ways that are not always healthy and they remove it for us. But we become... And I, I don't know if you encountered this in your writing, the Jerobeg or Jerobeg. I never know if, the, if you encountered those. These were monks that were basically didn't want to place roots. Yeah. And they would float around back and forth. And they were because they were very guilty of Asenia. Yes. You, you actually talk about roots too. You you talk about, you start this aspect in one of the chapters. I can't remember where it was. And you start talking about trees. And mm-hmm. I started wondering, I'm like, where are we going, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing with these trees? You describe these these English redwoods and I think American redwoods, and you talk yeah. about being in the city squares and how they were designed to grow big, but they couldn't. Yeah. One, they had to be tra- they were traumatized. Elaborate. I, I don't want to give away too much. I'd rather have you explain it. Elaborate what the trees, what you are using the trees to describe for us. Mm. Well, I was just honestly elaborating on the imagery that's already given to us in scripture. So when we're going to talk about the the flourishing human life, we have the picture of the tree in Psalm 1. And I just, I think that as a student of literature, as, as a worker of with words, you know, I think that these are not incidental. Like, I don't think that the psalmist said, Oh, I don't know. How, what should we compare, you know, human life, a flourishing human life? I, well, I guess we'll just say trees, you know, um, like I think that the tree actually has a lot to teach us about um, flourishing human life. You know, just that when you look at the root systems, for example, one of the things I kind of got interested in this. And I mean, I've, these are the things these are just the things that happen as I start to get interested in something. It's like all of a sudden, you know, you're learning all kinds of things. But we were in Vancouver, actually, and we were visiting some of the old, old forests there on in the northwest. And they were talking about how what we're, we know now about trees, that they have all these fungal networks among the roots. And so trees actually are communicating to each other all the time. They're they're passing warnings about weather and pests and I mean it's it's incredible to think about and this is to speak to belonging you know Mm -hmm. that when so often we think about Psalm 1 you know oh wow that's that solitary oak that you pass and through the 
Indiana. I don't know. You're on Highway 65 and Interstate 65. And you're like, look at that one oak. That must be what God meant in Psalm 1. Well, no, he probably actually meant the Redwood Forest um, where we um, are belonging to each other. There's a lot of strength and protection. There's all these kind of crazy ways where the canopy, you know, we know all there are these different ways that, you know, there's the understory and different levels within the forest and how that is all working together to shelter each other. Um, but one of the things that's very interesting to think about roots is just the American redwoods compared to the European redwoods. A lot of the European redwoods were um, planted to be in these really stately gardens. And um, they had very small root balls. The balls, the root balls were trimmed. And so they they just could never grow to a certain majesty because of the ways that their root balls had been trimmed. And, you know, it just made me think about just early traumas in our lives and ways that make it very difficult for us to learn to even belong. I think I'm talking about it a, a lot in the belonging chapter because I think that's something we have to learn is to, to belong to each other. So I just think that, I think that God's given us an amazing repertoire of, of imagery in scripture. You know, the vine would be another one, vines and branches. I mean, if you start to think about how, um, vineyards are cultivated like i just think there's a lot there for us to think about this is all very organic imagery which is set against the kind of like machine kinds of things that are predominant in an industrial productive society so i think like the there's a seasonality one of the things that i think is just really beautiful to think about trees to think about vines is that there generally is a seasonality to that there's a wintering season for trees and what if we could embrace that for our lives to think about it i'm in a season where like i feel like i'm just dropping leaves you know and i'm just bare on the branch you know but the beautiful things about wintering seasons um for plants is that that's the time where all the roots are growing like all this all it's all the underground kind of work what if we could think about our lives when we don't feel very fruitful and yet we could really believe okay i'm i'm in a waiting season i'm in an enduring season but God's deepening a faith in me that is going to be needed for the next spring um so I think there's a lot of I just think there's a lot of hopefulness for us in that holding that truth in place you talk about this thriving this this fruitfulness but part of that requires taking in God's word mm -hmm. and you talk about meditating and you, you refer to I think it was, uh, was it Eugene Peterson when he was writing about the eat this book? Yes. And you mentioned that the word instead of meditate day and night is the what the, the word instead of meditate, it actually means something else. You yeah, that? it means, um, doesn't it mean like stuttering out loud or murmurs, murmurs, murmurs. Okay, that's yes, right. Murmurs. That's what you wrote. The Lord's teaching is his desire and his teaching. He murmurs day and night. And I went, Wow. What? But that low guttural sound, the idea is, is that they, or, or convey the idea rather yeah. than explain it, convey that idea for us. Eugene Peterson says that it's, it's the dog on the bone, you know, just like, rawr, 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 you know, <laughs> so there's this really active, I mean, again, I think when we read a word like meditate, 
this side of the enlightenment were like cognitive, cognitive, like I opened my brain and like words fall in. Um, or, you know, maybe I ruminate on them. Like we think of a very cognitive kind of activity, but the it's very bodily. Actually, this word meditate, like you're, you're really hungry, you're gnawing on it. And this would also kind of even speak to acedia. One of the things that I would say that I notice in my own self is a resistance to the demands of learning, the demands of like real kind of like study and growth. Um, you know, I want things to be easy for me. I want, I do want God to just kind of like download the information that I need, you know, give me the new operating system and then I will walk forth in my newness of life. But, but what if we could imagine our relationship with scripture probably will require effort. Very, it 100% is going to require effort. And there are all kinds of different efforts involved. And I think that's also something that I've been able to notice and name in my own life. Some efforts are easier than others. You know, I, I find it fairly easy to read the scriptures. I, I've been reading the scriptures since I was 16, like on a daily basis. Like I really, and I read, I read the Bible in a year. I love that um, ability to inhabit the story in that way. You know, like every year I just am like cycling through the story of God. I'm getting restoried myself. I find it much harder to study the scriptures, much harder to memorize the scriptures. Easy, uh, easier for me to meditate on the script, like meditate in the sense of like, you know, just ponder, reflect, examine my own heart. But this kind of like rah, 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 not gnawing at, you know, working it to the bone. Like there is, I think God has a lot for us there. I mean, I've, for example, recently been, reading Exodus, trying, that's trying what I'm trying to study in my own personal time. It's like, I can't even get past Exodus three. I mean, there's just so much there, but it's not there on a cursory read. And there are a lot of things that aren't there even until you memorize them. And the older that I get, the harder I feel that it is to memorize. Um, it takes more effort, but all of these like efforts combined are to think about Psalm one, these are the things that are going to root us so deeply. Mm. I mean, because again, to go back to that imagery of like, we're assaulted by different stories. We're assaulted by different kinds of ideas and values and the vision of the good life. But like, oh, now that bone of God's true story of the world, you know, and the true person that I am and the true call to love my neighbor. Like I, if I don't like, gnaw on it. It's just not going to happen by osmosis. Jen, we've had so many things that we've talked about today. <laughs> yes, the, there's so many different pieces to your book that are so relevant to our spiritual lives and our outlook, changing and influencing our perspective. But as we come to the end of our time, what is a water bottle that we can give our, our audience out there for them to sip on the spiritual truth for them to sip on in the week to come. Mm. Well, we've talked a lot about habit, which I think is to speak about effort. And I think what I want people to think about more in their Christian life is that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And this is not mm. my little proverb. This is Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard. 
think it's very it's the it's a key paradox in the Christian life. Grace isn't opposed to effort. You are living and walking and working in grace as you expend effort in the spiritual life, even as we were just talking about the nine, you know, on God's word. Um, grace is opposed to earning. Our effort will never earn us anything. Jesus did that. Um, but I want to encourage people to think about effort as it relates to their Christian life. Because I think a lot of people maybe wait on transformation to happen to them. Mm. Um, or, you know, maybe they are have fallen into acedia where the effort feels very great. And the miracle of it is that God says, you know, I will will. I will work in you to will and to work for my good pleasure. So any effort we would expend would actually be work effort. That's God's already given us the ability to expend, if that makes sense. So our relationship to effort, grace is not opposed to effort. It actually grace calls us into effort in response to the gift of Christ. Just grace is opposed to earning. So earning and effort effort are different. I like your, I, I like that water bottle for people to be able to sip on. That's not a distinction that I think people often think about. Mm. How, how can people follow and learn more about your ministry? Mm -hmm. The best place is on Substack. Um, and I know not everybody's on Substack. It's a great little place where a lot of, a lot of writers are publishing work now. And you can subscribe at my website, jenpollockmichelle.com. You can also go to Substack if you're there. And my Substack is called A Habit Called Faith. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be, for example, interviewing Uche and I can't believe I can't say his last name, but I'm interviewing him in January to talk about his book, Overcoming Apathy. So if, um, if you're a subscriber, you can get access to, um, if you're a paid subscriber, you can get access to some of those extras. And if you're just a free subscriber, I send you a letter every week. Um, and it's on all kinds of topics, but all related to a habit called faith generally. So like this next week, what am I writing about? I am writing about Eugene Peterson wanting to become a saint and sainthood as related to habits. So just all kinds of different musings, but those come out on Mondays and you can find that jenpollockmichelle.com or on Substack. Awesome. Thank you for being a guest on Apollo's Watered. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. I love that line from Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort, but earning. It's so true. I think that is a really important reminder in our hurried, busy, anxiety-ridden time. We need to live a countercultural reality for our neighbors so that they will see Jesus in us. But here's the news flash that we don't think about too often. We need to do it because we need it too. We need to remember why we are following Christ in the first place. He is more than cosmic fire insurance. He is the one who made us and wants us to flourish. He wants what is best for us. But too often, we settle for so much less. We are functionally no different than those around us. Look, that's not me pointing the finger. I mean, we. I fall prey to it too all the time. In fact, I wonder what does a countercultural life look like in our culture today? I mean, especially when we're so isolated from one another. We're so busy. It's why, as Jen said, hope demands that we look back as well as forward. That we remember who God is and what he has done. That way, when the dark times, the anxiety-ridden times, the incomprehensible times show up, we can stand. 
I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. As Jen said, people, the church, huh, that's hard work. It's easier to sit back and embrace the meh, but it's not very fulfilling, is it? Not stopping our anxiety, not making us better, but rethinking our calendars and our clocks. Why we submit the way we do. Well, perhaps that's a start. I hope you were as blessed by that conversation as I was. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. A